Yeah, uh, so as Adrian was explaining, we're uh, exploring a series called Encounter at the moment, uh, which is why we're kind of sitting the way we're sitting. Um, and it's really about thinking about what it means to encounter God in different aspects of worship uh, in the life of the church. Um, and uh, yeah, so normally what we do at this church, if you're new here, normally what we do is we kind of work through a book of the Bible. Uh, we, you know, last time we looked through a part of Genesis, looking at the life of Abraham. Uh, and so on and so forth. That's normally what we do. We like to read through the whole counsel of God and see what we learn from there. Uh, but this series is a little bit different. It's a little bit more thematic, where we're looking at different themes that we see throughout Scripture. So it will be slightly different to what we're used to. Um, so please do stick with that. And today, there are going to be kind of two passages that I, I sort of focus on uh, as we come to, uh, come to it today. But as we begin, let me start um, by praying to God and asking for his help, particularly in this hot weather. Uh, let me ask the Spirit to help us. As we come to his word, let's pray. Worthy is the lamb. Father, as we've just sung, we look now to the lamb seated on his throne. Father, the darling of heaven crucified, who shed his blood for our sake so that we might be called your people. Father, help us now to come in true worship as we listen to you. Help us to hear your voice as you speak to us, Lord. Please keep us alert and awake, particularly in this hot weather. Father, would the enemy not snatch away the seeds of your word? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I love food. Anyone else love food? Is that it? Just Adriana? Do you not like to eat? If you know anything about me, uh, I, I absolutely love food. So if you get stuck in a conversation with me and you're like, it's getting a bit awkward, just say, Mike, what food do you like? And we'll get going again. Um, I, like, I think when we come to food, there are two ways, two types of eating. There is the functional type of eating. You know what that is? It's just about getting the nutrients down you as quickly as possible. Um, it's a bit like that fuel stuff, the human fuel. Some people might be into that sort of stuff where you just chug down this vat of whatever. It's a weird thing. Some people are really into that. Some people even have t-shirts they wear, have fuel. And it's kind of, let's get energy in and then crack on with the day. And we, I think we normally tend to do that in sort of breakfast or lunchtime in the working week. You get your four Weetabix and let's, let's move on. But then there's the opposite of the functional type of eating. That is not the malfunctional. Um, that would be pretty terrible. But uh, it's more kind of eating for pleasure, for enjoyment. That's the sort of meal you go out with your friends and you have good food in the company of others. See, eating together is a huge part of, of lots of cultures and peoples. You've got the Sunday roast. You've got the Korean barbecue. The, the Spanish tapas, the Brazilian feijoada, if I said that right. Uh, the Ethiopian bayanatu. Is that right, Yoel? Um, all types of food that, that show a lot about our culture, that reveal about who we are, but also how we relate to one another. Food is deeply relational. And that is why it's so foundational sometimes. When we talk about welcoming people and hospitality, we often like to do that around food. It's really important. So you can picture it. Picture a McDonald's that you're walking down in, you know, in London. You walk down and there's a McDonald's there. And you see that bar with the bar stools. And there are all these people just sitting there staring at you with headphones in, just munching on their, their burgers. That is a functional type of eating. Fast food, let's get on with it. And compare that to a picture of a homely barbecue on a hot summer's day like this with people gathered around enjoying grilled meats, if you're a meat eater, and aubergines and those lovely big portobello mushrooms, if you're not. Eating is a necessity, but it's also a privilege for people to love, that, that we love to explore. 
It's ingrained into us as human beings. It's wired into us and into our culture. And this reflects a pattern of something that we see in creation. I was amazed as I studied this week just the amount of time Scripture talks about food, about eating together. And for a food lover, I'm like, That's a, this is great. I love it. But today we're going to focus on one particular meal. And for this meal, we don't get invited by a friend or a family member or just someone out there. But it's God himself who invites us. God himself who invites us to come and dine with him. To encounter God at the dinner table. As Jesus sat there eating with his closest disciples on that final night before he went to the cross. So the question we're thinking about this afternoon is, what does this act of the Lord's Supper, as we see before us here, now I'm going to use Lord's Supper, Lord's Table, communion interchangeably, they mean the same thing, but what does that mean for us today? Why does it matter? Why do we do this regularly together as a church? And how do we then, through that, encounter God more richly at the Lord's Table? That's what we're going to look at this afternoon. So the first passage we're going to focus on is, is Luke chapter 22. So if you've got your Bibles to hand on your phones, or if you need a Bible, there are some at the back, if somebody could bring them over to anyone who can stick up their hand. But if you have your Bible to hand, uh, either on your phone or a physical Bible, Luke chapter 22, verses 13 to 20. It might appear on the screen as well. Yeah, look at that. Ooh. Okay. Right, let me read. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. And gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Great. So what I wanted to start with is, is kind of looking at this passage to see kind of more thematically what is, what is going on here. And I kind of want to take it in three stages. And the first stage is this, is to see that God is the one who invites us. God invites us. Just picking up on that idea that food is so central to human culture. How many people have ever, be honest, have ever taken a photo of the food you're about to eat? Yeah, quite, quite a few of you. Yeah, don't be shy, it's fine, I do it all the time. Um, because actually on my phone, oh, look, Samsung, here's, here's an ad for Samsung, I do this sometimes. Samsung on their, on their new phones, they've gone on their photo app, there's an option for food. And when you take it with the food option, it does look so tasty and incredible. Do you see how food and eating is just seems to be so central to who we are as human beings? In our family, about, I swear about 50% of the conversation is about what are we going to eat and why? And this reflects something of what God intended. In Genesis 2, God made everything, and he also gave us all sorts of food to enjoy. And so it's good to enjoy food together. Not to indulge, but to enjoy it together. But I want to go deeper than that. Because the deeper intention, I think, that the Bible points towards is that the food was there to be enjoyed with God. Right from the start, we see in Scripture this privilege of eating with God in his presence. Adam and Eve, the first human beings, and they were created and placed in the Garden of Eden where there's so much stuff to eat with who? 
in the presence of God with him. There they were, dwelling in his presence. Eating with God was a gift to them from the beginning, part of God's blessing to us. It's not a right that we have. It's not like me just going, inviting myself over to yours and saying, oh, like, mate, give me just, just give me some food. Or my kid, who's like, daddy, food. It's a privilege and a blessing that God has given to us that we could eat in his presence. And in Genesis 2, everything was very good to eat. You don't ever get one-star reviews in dining with God. Sometimes imagine if God were a chef, a master chef, what, what would that be like? But here's then where it went all wrong. Because Adam and Eve then saw that tree with the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And it looked good to the eye. And not only was it them then disobeying God's word, but they took and ate without inviting God to the table. Do you see what they did? They did this away from God's presence and then went on to hide from him. Instead of eating in the presence of God and taking that as a privilege, they, they hid and ate in the absence of God with something that they shouldn't be eating. Imagine if you'd invited me over for, for dinner. Uh, and I come over, and before we sit down, you've been cooking, you say, okay, I'm just going to wash my hands in the bathroom. So you go out. And I, and I go, and then I lock up the, the door of the dining room, and I sit there. And then I start serving food on myself, and I just eat all the food. And you're stuck outside going, Mike, are you going to let me in? I said, no, I'm not. See, it was a privilege for me that you'd invited me into your home to eat with me, and I've spat that right in your face. It's stupid. And I'm pretty sure you would never invite me again, and you'd probably tell everyone else, don't invite Mike ever to your house. But that is exactly what's happened to Adam and Eve. That is how they've treated God. It's stupid. And there are consequences. Because in turn, they are now uninvited to eat with God ever again. You see how this is a picture of judgment? No longer can they eat in the presence of God. Instead, they are banished from his presence. And instead of the abundance of food that God provides, now a man must now toil and labor and work to make his own food. This is why I think we sometimes find work really hard. We need to work to eat. And this is partly why we enjoy really good food when we're resting. Think about the food you eat on holiday. How many people on holiday go, I'm going to have, I don't know, a bowl of Weetabix every morning on holiday? I, don't, I doubt you would. You'd probably go for what, full English breakfast? Pancakes with syrup and blueberries and I don't know, whatever you go for. But you want to eat good food. See, all of this reflects that deeper longing for rest and feasting in God's presence. That is what humanity pines for. And we never seem to be able to reach it. We're longing to be back there in God's presence where we just enjoy eating with him, with all that he gives. So here's a, here's a question. If you're not following Jesus today, if you're here and you're not following Jesus today, then let me tell you, you would have tasted, foretasted something good of God's creation. And that is just a foretaste of what is to come. But what it reflects, that, that longing, what that reflects is that deeper problem in our hearts where we keep uninviting God, where we keep turning our backs on the very God that gives life. We love to dine in the absence of God. And that is a picture of our sin against him. That is why all of us sit under judgment, frustrated by life, absent from the presence of God. So if that's you, you need to come and hear this invitation because you know what the amazing thing is? God doesn't leave it like that. By his grace, God starts to make a way for us to come back into his presence, to eat with him again. 
And we see glimpses of this throughout the Old Testament. Let me just point out a couple. A couple of times in the Bible where we see this. Think back to Abraham last time that we looked at it. We looked at the life of Abraham. Um, If you weren't with us, Abraham basically in Genesis 12 gets this huge promise from God saying, look, I'm going to make you into a great nation. nation. You're going to come into this promised land and I will bless you. I will be with you. And then what happens? Genesis 15, God appears with two angels and he dines with Abraham in his presence. I mean, granted, Abraham does do the cooking, but there he is sitting with God face to face, eating. Back then, covenants were often sealed by having a meal together. That is what they were doing. So here is God sealing that promise that he's made to Abraham and saying, look, this promise between you and me is now sealed by this meal. And then we see this again a few hundred years later. After the Exodus, where the Israelites have been captive for many years in Egypt under this cruel Pharaoh, God hears their cry and he goes and rescues them. He pulls them out. And he does that by this, the Passover meal in Exodus chapter 12. We'll come on to that in a moment. But I want us to go further. When they get out of Egypt, God does this incredible thing where he opens the Red Sea and they pass through and they get to Mount Sinai and then God gives them the law. And then what happens? There is this incredible scene in Exodus chapter 24 where after the covenant, the promise is confirmed. Listen to these words. Exodus 24 verses 9 to 11. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, Those guys are the sons of Aaron who are high priests. And the 70 elders, the leaders of Israel, went up the mountain and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli. It's a cool word. I have no idea what it means. As bright blue as the sky. But I know it's blue. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God. They ate and drank. Can you imagine being there? Sitting in the presence of God, eating and feasting with him. See, are you, hopefully you're starting to see how God longs for his people to come back into his presence and dine with him. Eating with him was a sign of a fulfillment of his promise and covenant to his people. And then you get to Jesus' time. Just think about the sheer number of times you hear Jesus wandering around doing his ministry And a number of times he's eating with people or on his way to eat with people. Think about the the many miracles. The first sign in Jonah is what? The wedding of Cana. There we are, feasting together. There's a feeding of the 5,000. Jesus talking about the banquet in his parable in Luke chapter 14. The invitation to the great banquet. That's not just because it's a good illustration, but it, it points to that reality that is to come, where we're headed, what we're looking to feasting with God in his presence. If you're unsure of it, let's go to the end of the Bible. Revelation chapter 19, verse 9. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. Do you see how eating with God in his presence is such a huge theme throughout Scripture? And there is God wanting to invite us to his table to eat with him. That was the intention at the garden where it started, and that is his intention throughout salvation. That's where we're headed. So we all need to hear this call to come, to come and eat with God. If you're not trusting in God yet, then you need to hear that invitation to come to him, because God is inviting you. This is his gift, his privilege that he wants you to experience into eternity. 
But here's the second thing. How does he do that? Through Jesus. Jesus is the one who brings us in. Um, I was once invited to this fancy dinner by one of my mates. I wonder if you've ever been to one of these. It's one of those posh sit-down ones where on the menu there's like eight different dishes. And most of them you have no idea what they mean. And you're like, is this English? It might be French, I don't know. But it was, I was like sitting there going, I really feel out of place. I don't know what's going on. They're calling me sir. Really, I'm not a sir. And as the dishes started to come out, the plates are huge and the portions are tiny. They're really deceptive. Um, but of the eight, there was always one that was seen as the main dish, the signature dish. And I can't remember what it was called because I didn't understand it, but I remember it tasted incredible. I also remember it lasted about two mouthfuls. But in the many meals that we've looked at throughout Scripture, there is one meal that is clearly the main meal, the main focus. And this meal doesn't have two mouthfuls. This one lasts into eternity. The meal in Exodus 24, the meals that Jesus has or he speaks of, these all point towards this one central meal. On the night before he was to go to the cross, where he sat there in the upper room with his 12 closest disciples. And this meal isn't just any meal. Because it points to the particular way that God would invite his people to come back into his presence to eat with him. And there Jesus, in this intimate meal, would take bread, bless it, break it, and give it out. Then he would take the cup, bless it, and then give it out. Now I mentioned earlier that we'd come back to the Passover meal. Well, here it is. These two meals, the Passover and the Lord's Supper, they are tightly linked. See, the Passover was a meal that was just before God was saving his people. It symbolized God's great salvation for his people who were trapped in slavery in Egypt. In Exodus chapter 12, if you want to remember, the people of God were there to prepare a specific meal before they left, to eat before God's great salvation was to come. Each family had to grab a lamb that was pure without blemish. And then they had to kill that lamb, take the blood, and paint it on their doorposts. And as the angel of the Lord came, God's judgment would come. He would pass over on all those with the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. And anyone who didn't would lose their firstborn son. And so key to that meal was the blood of the lamb. That signified the salvation of the people of God. And God then tells the Israelites, look, when you come out of the land, repeat this Passover year after year. And so many years, a thousand years later, here was Jesus in this intimate setting in the upper room. And when is it? Do you see that? 22.13. They left and found things, so they prepared the Passover. Here it is, that time of the year. But what is the key? There are lots of little differences, but what is the main difference between the Passover and this meal here? There's no more lamb. Why? Because the lamb was sitting right in front of the disciples before their very eyes. Here was that final lamb, the pure lamb without blemish, the one who was completely sinless, completely righteous, completely spotless, who would once and for all, by his blood, ensure his people would be saved. Not from physical Pharaoh, but from the spiritual, eternal chains of sin leading to hell. Eternal separation from the presence of God, never being able to feast and dine with him ever again. See, this is the way that God had made for people like us to be able to come back into his presence, to dine with him once again, through his one and only son, through Jesus. So when Jesus comes and he institutes this Lord's Supper, what he's doing is saying, look, I'm, I'm taking that Passover meal 
and I'm fulfilling it once and for all because I am that final lamb. You don't need to slay a lamb every year anymore. It's done. It's finished at the cross. And as Adam and Eve took that judgment upon themselves, as, as they say, I take and I eat, Jesus then says, look, take and eat my body and my blood given for you. The bread and wine represent that body and blood of Christ now shed for us. Often when we have um, one of those big meals that I mentioned at the start, there is always this sort of main dish, right? If you think about the roast, Sunday roast, maybe not in this sort of weather, but if you were, were to have a roast, there is, you've got the parsnips, the potatoes, and the gravy, and all that stuff, but there is always a main thing, whether that's nut roast, or turkey, or whatever you, whatever you go for. The focal point is right there, you see it. And in this meal, the focal point is right on Christ. It centers all on him, on his body and his blood. So later on, when we come to the Lord's table, we want to fix our eyes on Jesus, on his body and blood. That is the focal point. The Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. This is why communion matters. Because it points to the very promise of God that he has made a way for us to return back to him so we can dine with him once again. We should have never been invited to God's eternal feast. But God does invite us through his son. That is why we celebrate this. And for those of us who trust in in Christ, this should bring us to come with gladness and gratitude, but also with an air of humility and repentance at who we are and what we've done to know what Christ has gone through for us. And for those of us who aren't following Jesus, I urge you again, would you accept that invitation from God? Because he's telling you, look, come and dine with me because the feast is going to be so good. You can find rest at my table. It will be so good in in eternity. So come, trust in my son who gave his body and blood for you. Come. But here's the third thing. It's to know that the spirit is with us. See, did you notice as we read through this reading in Luke 22, Jesus was with his disciples in the flesh as he instituted the Lord's Supper, but then he makes it clear. Do you see that in verse 16? I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And in verse 18, he says again of the wine, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Because Christ knows he's physically going to ascend to the right hand of the Father to reign on his throne. That is one of the reasons why. So he's not present any longer at the Lord's Supper physically in that sense, which is why one of the, this is why one of the reasons uh, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper is we don't expect some magical thing to happen where this actually becomes Jesus' body, physical body and his blood because he's reigning in his person on the throne today. And also, as before, we saw that Jesus is the final sacrifice once and for all. He's the lamb. That's why we don't need the lamb anymore. So we don't need to keep eating of his actual physical body and blood any longer, as though we're going back to repeat the Passover again and again and again. It's not that like we re-sacrifice Jesus in that way. That's the sort of view that, that the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church has, and that is not how we see this. But what is happening at the Lord's table is that we are approaching God's table together with the spirit that's promised us. As we come to his table, we are not alone. Here's a simple truth. As Jesus left physically, Jesus in John chapter 14, 16 promises us that the spirit would come to all of his followers, his spirit. 
And the Holy Spirit, if you're trusting in Christ today, is present in you and with us as his followers in this church as we gathered here. And in John chapter 6, as he feeds the, the 5,000 and then he speaks and he says, look, I am the bread of life. He makes it clear that the Spirit is the one who gives flesh. Sorry, the Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. His focus is all on what the Spirit is going to do. And the Spirit is present with us as we come to feed on him as we approach the Lord's table. So a lot of the arguments always surround about, okay, what is actually the bread, body and blood of Jesus? What is the bread and the wine? But I think we need to take a step back and think, okay, what is actually going on as we do this act of remembrance that Jesus calls us to? What is the Spirit doing? And I want us to finish our time by looking at just four things that are hopefully more practical as we think about, okay, what does this mean? As we come a little bit later to, to share in this table, what does this mean for us? And to do that, to help us do that, we're going to uh, jump to another passage. Sorry to jump around a little bit. Uh, but jump to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. These should be familiar to you if you've come to communion b- uh, before. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 29. It should also appear on the screen. There it is on the screen. Let me read. So, for I received from the Lord what I also passed unto you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was ret- betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. So here's the first of the four things, what it means for us. The first thing is the Spirit helps us to remember. The Spirit helps us to remember. You see that in verses 24 and 25. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. That is what Jesus says. And the Spirit helps us to remember that God is inviting us to his table to come and dine with him through his son, Jesus. And for us to, there, it's not only to remember what he's done in the past, but it's also to remember what he's done in the present and he's, what he's doing in the present and what he's going to do in the future, what he's promised. So as we come to the Lord's table a little bit later, think about these three aspects of what, God, what Jesus has done. Here's the past aspect. We remember how he laid down his life for people like us, like you and me, where he had his body torn to shreds, broken for us, where his blood was poured out so that we might be clean of our sin and clothed in his righteousness. How he was that final Passover lamb, the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Here's the present aspect, where we remember what the body and blood gives us access to now, to a new life, a life in Jesus, a life as a righteous child of God, a life that is filled by his spirit, who draws us closer to him, who reminds us of everything that Jesus taught us. A life that now has access to the throne room of God, So we can come to him in prayer and call him our father. And here's the future aspect. We can look to the future where there is this banquet waiting for us. Where God invites us and says, look, come and sit at my table. Come and sit on this set date and this banquet is going to go on into eternity. Come once again and feast with me, with the very lamb who died for you. So as we come to the table, we remember the richness of all that this points us to. 
Fix your eyes on Jesus as we come this afternoon and ask the Spirit to guide you to remember how Jesus died for us and rescued us, but how he has also given us a new life now, how he calls us his child, and how he's invited us into the future, into this eternal banquet that this is a foretaste of, a picture of. The second thing is, um, is this. The Holy Spirit helps us to participate in the Lord's Supper. If you flip back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul, uses, Paul says this. It's not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks, a participation in the blood of Christ. And it's not the bread that we break, a participation in the body of Christ. Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. See, Paul uses that term participate there, which literally means fellowship, which captures two senses. The first is this, as we, as we come to the Lord's Supper, the Spirit enables us to have this deeper fellowship with Christ through his body and his blood. It's not just a memory where we kind of sort of recollect a nice holiday, oh, that was nice, or a nice ice cream we had on a hot summer's day. But there is something deeper going on. There's this active fellowship with Jesus himself. It is not just an act by which we remember Jesus, but it's a physical act that embodies all that Jesus has done through which we physically encounter God's promise in Jesus. What the Spirit is doing is enabling us to fully encounter the fullness of the promises of God, reminding us once again, look, this promise is for you. It is not just a memory. The Spirit is often spoken of as the one who seals and guarantees the promises of God, Ephesians 1. And communion is a little bit like that. As we come and take and eat of the bread and wine, the Spirit is helping us in sealing that promise us, showing us once again, look, this is a sign of the promise of God that is sealed for you. Let me try and illustrate this. It's, um, in a few weeks' time, it's my anniversary with my wife. Uh, we've been married for about almost six years. She's not, she's not here, I think, so I can get it. Um, I think it's six years. Look, our relationship, our relationship is still there. It's still good. The promise is still there. Till death parts us. We made those vows. So I don't actually have to buy her anything. I might might end up sleeping outside for a few nights. But actually, I don't really need to buy anything. The promises are still there. But I do go and buy some flowers for her and a gift. Because I want to embody our relationship and to show that this promise, the vows we made, still stand through the age. Through this sign that we made. Through this sign of giving flowers. That physical action of buying her flowers embodies the promise that we have. That is what it's like. The promise of God hasn't changed. It's all found in Christ, by faith in Christ, in his sacrifice, in his body and blood. But as we physically take and eat of the bread and wine, we sort of embody that promise once more, and the Spirit helps to seal it. And that is how it helps to actually just strengthen our faith, not just our memory. Our heart should be like, yes, this is God's promise to me as I eat and drink of the blood and the body. But here's a second dimension of that word participation. The second is that we fellowship with one another through the body and blood of Christ. As we break this bread and we drink this wine together, it's about the unity of the body of Christ and the church. It's about participating together, fellowshipping together, because of all that Jesus has done. Paul makes it clear there is one loaf. We who are many are one body. So as we eat together, this is actually a sign of our unity together as his people. United by one gospel, one spirit, one God, 
that says we are in fellowship with Jesus. It's not just a memory, but a, but a physical and spiritual reality of being present and fellowshipping with him. So you know, as we come in a moment to, to take and eat of this bread and wine, come expecting to fellowship with Jesus more deeply, but also with one another. The Spirit seals and guarantees that promise of God in our hearts, but also with one another. And so related to that is a third thing, reconcile. The Spirit helps us to reconcile as we come to the Lord's table. Look at verse 27, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. I remember as, um, so I've got an older sister. I remember as kids, we used to fight a lot. Um, do, you, do you know when the peak time of fights tends to happen with siblings? It's usually before meal times because you're getting pretty hangry and cranky. And sometimes the fights would be pretty bad. Like, she was bigger than me at the time. Um, and so she, I'd try and punch her and she'd kick me back and I'd have a nosebleed. Everybody tears. Um, we don't fight anymore. She's in Korea, she ran away. Um, but then, but then mum would then, as we're fighting, mum would say, stop it, come and eat. She'd call us to come and eat. And can you imagine the mood? After a fight like that, trying to eat together at the same table, can you imagine? Here I am, there I am with a nosebleed, turn my back on my sister, <clears throat> cross, angry. I don't want to be with her. I don't want to eat with her. I'd be see- I was seething. We'd be seething, wouldn't we? Now, in the church, we, not, we, we might not be like that physically. Hopefully, we won't be like that physically, kicking and punching. But in our hearts, we can be. And God says, look, as we gather around the Lord's table, the Spirit is going to convict you, convict us, to reconcile with one another of those we have fallen out with. The fellowship of believers around Christ is a foundational aspect of the church. How we eat together shows the watching world who we are. United around Christ. It's our identity. It's who we are. It shows that we are individuals redeemed by Christ, bound together by his body and blood. Unity is a fundamental result of God's grace to the church. So if there's broken fellowship in a church, then that is not right. And the Lord's table is a key means of grace where we are once again reminded of all that Jesus has done, that the Spirit seals in our heart in fellowship by Christ. And through that, God's grace is refreshed to us once again so that we might reconcile with one another. See, the context of 1 Corinthians 11, what the whole book is really about a lot of division and disunity in the church in Corinth. And one of those disunities was around the Lord's table. And so Paul is sitting here saying, look, you can't have a heart of disunity. If you are in broken relationship with somebody, that's not right. You need to go and reconcile. And I think this is what he means when he's talking in verse 27 about drinking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Now, I think we tend to read that in Western culture a bit individualistically. But you need to see how these are interlinked. See, if you have broken fellowship with Jesus, then by default you have broken fellowship with the church, his body, with others. So it's right that we contemplate that and we repent and come to the Lord's table. But flip that around. If you have broken fellowship with a believer, a fellow believer, Jesus is saying, well, then you also have broken fellowship with me. If you're broken with my body, you can't be right with me. So if you come to my table in that way, 
then you are drinking in an unworthy manner and guilty of sinning. To eat and drink properly isn't just about the state of my heart with God, but with the state of our hearts with others around us. It's a challenging question for us to consider every time we come to the Lord's table. Are we in broken fellowship with someone else in Christ's body? Is there somebody with whom you have a broken relationship where you've hurt them or been hurt by them? Well then, in this moment, before we come to eat of his body and blood, it's right right and good that we come and reconcile with them. Not just to pray on my own to God and say, oh, please forgive me for that, and I'm sure that will be okay, but to go and seek them and pray with them. And you know what? Whenever I've seen this in churches in the past, not just you, but the watching church encounters the depth of God's grace all the more deeply as they see see those people come together, reunited and reconciled in fellowship. It is a beautiful picture of all that Jesus has done, of his sacrifice for us, how he restored the most deeply broken and significant relationship in the world with God. And how he uses his body and blood, to reconcile us too and restore our relationships. That was the third thing, to reconcile with one another. Here's the fourth thing that I think we sometimes miss this too. It's the last thing you'll be glad to know in this heat. Well done for keeping up with me. Right, 11, chapter 11, verse 26. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Spirit helped us to proclaim. A Roman historian recorded that the early Christians were known to be cannibals who ate of the body and drank of the blood of some man called Jesus. How we eat shows who we are, not just within the, the church, but to the watching world. We are proclaiming to the watching world every time we gather to eat, visibly of of who we believe in and what Jesus has done. See, that word proclaim there is used almost, if you look through it in the New Testament, it's almost exclusively used in proclamation of the gospel or something related to to that truth about Jesus. And I think it's great that we're often contemplative as a church when we come to the Lord's table and we think, oh, this is great for us. But we need to be aware that we do this as a physical expression and proclamation of what we believe in. If you look in the the book of of 1 Corinthians, you'll see in 1 Corinthians 14, there is an assumption that there will be outsiders, those who don't follow Jesus gathered in the church as well. They're watching in. They're present in the worship. And it's a wonderful opportunity for us to show them this is who we are. This is who we believe in. I asked my, um, my uni friends who don't, who don't follow Jesus. I said, look, do you guys know what communion is? And they came up with all this stuff they kind of sort of seen and thought a little bit about. They sort of knew what it was about. But then the key question came. They asked me, Mike, what actually is it? Because I know you work in a church. Haha, <laughs> well, let me tell you. There's an opportunity right there. See, do you see how the Lord's table is a means of grace for others to start to see how we encounter God? It's a conversation starter, but it's more than that. Because they have a window to peer into the very embodiment of God's promise to his people. Of what is at the heart of the gospel. Look, let's, we, need to, we need to wrap up. But in a moment, we're going to come to, to the Lord's table. To eat together in fellowship, in unity around the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But as we do, think about some of the things. Perhaps there's something that struck you. Perhaps you need to remember more clearly of all the promises that Jesus made. 
Perhaps it's more about fellowship with Jesus, more deeply encountering him as you take of his body and blood. Perhaps it's more about thinking, I need to reconcile with a brother or sister. Whatever it is, let me give you a moment now just to pray that in your heart, to really think carefully about what this means to you. And as we pray, let's, and after we pray, as we come around the Lord's table, let's, let's take this seriously as a, as a real time for us to encounter God at his table. Let me give you a moment in a quietness to, to pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the body and blood of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Father, help us to to see how you invite us to come back to you, to dine with you once again in your presence, and that is only through Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Help us to approach this table with confidence, knowing all that Jesus has done. May it strengthen our faith, May it help us to remember all that you have done through Christ. May it help us to reconcile with one another. And may it be a way that we can proclaim your gospel embodied in this act that you've told us to do time and time again in remembrance of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this all in his name. Amen.